Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminally Disturbed. I am Paul. And I'm Jamie. And we are coming to you live recorded from our closet. Yay, the closet. <laughs> so uh, we just finished recording a podcast that we're going to be uploading soon. We're mm-hmm. going to now, now we're into your part two of this dumbass John Crutchley. Dumbass, but with a genius IQ. With a well, that's why he's a dumbass. Because he's not putting it to good use. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Remember, he had an IQ of what one sixty two. One sixty eight. One. That's even worse. It matched. He had the same as Einstein, Bill Gates, um, and I don't. Remember. Stephen Hawking's. Yes, Stephen Hawking's. Wow. Yeah. So he was smart. Yeah. And. He was also just, he a self-proclaimed vampire. Right. He liked to drink the blood. And he was taught that by a nurse. A nurse, a nurse. when he was working in Washington. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You got to think, who's working in them damn hospitals in Washington? It's just D.C., right? Yep. Mm. Crazy. Yeah. Well, before we get into that, just want to remind everybody that we do have an email address. It is cdisturbedpodcast at gmail.com. We have an Instagram, Criminally Disturbed Podcast, and our Facebook page is Criminally Disturbed. Go to our Facebook page, like our Facebook page, and you will find that that's where we upload all of our episodes and things. Yeah. Uh, Wherever you're listening to us from, definitely rate rate us us and leave a comment or something. If we're just shit, we would like to know that we're shit. Don't leave a comment. Not on there. Send us yeah. an email. Yeah, on send that. an email. <laughs> but I mean, you know, if we're shit, we want to know. So tell us. Yeah. You know. So anyway, if you haven't listened to part one of John Crutchley, definitely go back and listen to right. it. Right. That way you can get caught up to where we are. Yeah, because you're not gonna. This is not. If you're starting right here, um, you're, you've missed out a lot. You missed out on a lot. So you're not gonna understand what's going on. Um, if you are starting right here, we have uh, a bunch of episodes before this one. Mm-hmm. A lot less quality sound in yeah, those. Yeah, the earlier ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which they were, st- the, the stories themselves were really good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But it sounded like we were recording in a tin can in some of them. Oh, I, I thought it was a tunnel. Tunnel, whatever. And then you can. can hear our cat in the background. She's got a, a jingly collar. You and can she hear walk our fridge. Around the fridge. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're recording from our closet. Because this is where we can get the most quiet. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So I guess uh, that's all the business. Let's jump right back into this John Crushley story, uh, part two. Okay. All right. So my... Why did I just go brain dead? I have no clue. Uh, I had nothing to do with it. It may be the alcohol. It might be. So my information for part two came from the book, The Vampire Next Door, The True Story of the Vampire Rapist by J.T. Hunter. And I also used newspapers.com. Oh, shit. Shout out to newspapers.com. My fave. So J.B., as we call him, is now working at the Harris Corporation. And, I remember that. Yeah. Right. Because yep. Christine Alma, who he 
had abducted Mm -hmm. had just escaped out of his bathroom window and she was in the hospital telling bob litherow about her uh what happened to her yeah now you remember when she escaped she got picked up Mm -hmm. by a dude Mm -hmm. and she told that dude pointed at the house right and said remember that house Mm -hmm. so he remembered and he said is that where you were and Mm -hmm. she said yes yeah because she hadn't gotten very far because she was shackled yeah she was still had handcuffs on her hands around her wrist and around her ankles right so at the harris corporation which is where jb worked colleagues found him to be a little eccentric which i can kind of see that eccentric yeah okay but he was well connected in the aerospace industry oh sure yeah because he's a fucking genius right literally his evaluations from harris noted that he sometimes expressed his opinions too firmly it would put others in a defensive position because they're not smart as smart as he is right but he also received good performance appraisals because he's fucking smart right i mean look that's the thing this dude he's smart Mm -hmm. genius he knows he's smart Mm -hmm. but when he goes into a room of 20 people chances are he's the smartest person in the room and the thing about it is he knows it yeah and that is unfortunately a bad quality yeah so in order to appear normal because we already know from part one that he's not normal right he would attend office parties and other official work get-togethers for the most part he was considered the computer geek with a goofy personality who enjoyed flirting with the women around the office now he was married though he was married him and his wife hosted several parties at their home One Christmas party at their house drew over 150 guests. Could you imagine that many people in your home? No. I don't know that I would have that kind of a party. No. They also held a Halloween party that had at least 70 people. Now, hold on. Is this the same house? Yes. Yep. There has to be a big house. It has to be. Or at least big land. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're back at the hospital. Christina Alma just finished telling Bob Leatherow about her her ordeal. And then the Brevard County Sheriff's What the fuck? The Brevard What? The Brevard County Sheriff's deputies learned that the house that she escaped from belonged to John and Karen Crutchley. Okay. So they're anticipating that they're fixing to get a search warrant for this house. So, Corporal Barry Lifford, who was a member of the Sheriff's SWAT team, Uh was sent to get an actual physical description because they would need that for the warrant for the house. Mm -hmm. So, Lifford and another officer, Lieutenant Fair, drove to an intersection that was near JB's house. Mm -hmm. So, Lifford got out of the vehicle because he's going to try and get a description without being seen. But as soon as he gets out of the vehicle, here comes a car coming down the road. From the house? No, not from the house. Mm. Just a car coming down the road. So he jumps out of the road because he didn't want to be seen and into a ditch. Well, along the ditch is bushes. So he kind of got to the bushes and was just crouching, waiting for the car to pass by. Is this dude like a regular James Bond or what? I I guess. I mean, what is he... 
well, they know that JB is supposed to be at home. So they're not wanting to be seen by any, the car coming down the road. And they're not wanting to be seen by JB, who's supposedly at home. No, I know. I'm just saying. Oh. <laughs> James Bond wouldn't just jump, jump into a ditch. Okay, well, this, th- this guy did. Okay. So as he's in the ditch, he came face to face with JB, who was also hiding in the ditch and bushes. What? What? <laughs> yeah. And JB was armed with a pistol. What? So, was he spying on his own house? No. Apparently, the officers weren't very uh, covered. So, he seen them out there, and he was watching them from the bushes with his gun. So, he, he saw them trying to do surveillance on his house. Which is not really surveillance, but, you know, getting the physical description of his house. So, JB demanded to know what Lifford was doing on his property. And Lifford, who was in plain clothes, he was not dressed as a cop. He was just wearing plain clothes, said that he had just been out for a late night stroll. And JB stated, not knowing that he's a cop, that, you know, you could be shot for trespassing. And finally, Lifford is like, no, just kidding. I'm, I'm a deputy sheriff. And he left. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> First know. of all, why, why the fuck is this just... JB doing surveillance on his own fucking house? I don't understand. He wasn't doing surveillance on his house. He noticed them out there trying to get a description of his How house. How did they not see him walk out of his fucking I house? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. So, Lifford gets back to the car, and he told Lieutenant Fair what happened. So, Lieutenant Fair is like, oh, shoot. He might be trying to flee or dispose of incriminating evidence because now he knows we're watching. Well, I mean, yeah. Why didn't you just pick him up right then? She came from the house. They know that the owner is this guy, John. Mm -hmm. Pick the dude up. Why would you just walk away? I don't know. I'm not a cop in Florida. I don't know the rules. I'm sorry. I I don't know their laws. Okay. I can already see this is going to piss me off. So Lieutenant Fair hurried to JB's front door, knocking loudly, and announced himself as a police officer. And he said that they were investigating a report of a prowler in the area. Well, JB never came to the door. So... Fair established two surveillance points for the house, so that way they had people watching the house. And Leatherow and Bo Russell were sent to prepare a search warrant. So they got two surveillance areas watching the house to make sure he's not leaving or trying to get rid of anything while they are now trying to get that search warrant. Okay. At 2.37 a.m., Fair and Leatherow knocked on the back door of JB's home and announced they had a, a warrant. JB kind of peered out from the window and then just kind of slunk back into the house in the darkness. I'm saying slunk because, I mean, obviously he's gross and evil. Oh, my God. So, obviously, he's not going to come open the door for him. So, Lieutenant Fair cut the screen on the door that connected the carport to the house. And as he reached in to unlock it, the screen door just kind of slowly creeped open. And JB was peering through the partially open door 
So Fair grabbed JB by the nose and pulled his ass out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uniformed deputies quickly placed him under arrest, and he was read his Miranda rights. So they take him back in the house in handcuffs and send him down in the dining room while they're fixing to search the house. So Leatherow is actually sitting there reading to JB the six-page search warrant. JB keeps trying to interrupt him, saying, I need to tell you my side of the story. I know why you're here. I screwed up. That Manson girl wanted it. She begged me to do it. Oh, my God. This is stuff that he's saying. Mm -hmm. So when Leatherow finished reading the search warrant, Agent Bo Russell re-advised JB of his Miranda rights. And JB finally said, I think I need to talk to an attorney. That'd be smart. That would be smart. So he called Joe Mitchell, and Joe agreed to represent him. But Mitchell had told JB that he could answer any questions that Fair had if he chose to do so, mm-hmm. but he should not trust anyone else associated with the sheriff's office. Mm. He didn't listen. JB said, I want to tell you my side of the story. He knew he had gotten caught. Oh, yeah. It's, it's done now. So this is his version of the story of what happened. I spent the morning working at my office and then went home for lunch because I'd left a notebook at the house that I needed for work that afternoon. Okay. His wife and son had gone to Maryland for the Thanksgiving holiday. So he said, I was enjoying the time alone. My wife and I had been experiencing some problems for a while, and we thought it would be good to spend a little time apart. I was on my way home from the office, and I spotted a girl hitchhiking on Malabar Road. Okay. As I slowed down to get a better look at her, she waved out and called to me. I could read her lips as she shouted to me, please, please. Okay, then. Yeah. He says that she looked as if she had never been out in the sun. Her skin was chalky and quite pale, and she looked spooky, but I felt sorry for her. So I agreed to give her a ride to Melbourne after I picked up the notebook that I needed for work. So... To me, he's trying to... Obviously, when she got to the hospital, she was pale because you've drained her of all this blood. Mm. So, I guess he's trying to say beforehand, she was already pale. So, that's not for me draining blood. Okay. When we got to my house, I parked in the carport and started to get out when the girl suddenly told me that one of her fantasies was to struggle. She said she wanted to be roughed up and my mind just kind of got away from me. I had some rope in the car, so I grabbed it and said, okay. I had the rope. How did this turn into all he was going to do is give her a ride to a sexual fantasy of being roughed up? Because that's what he's saying that she said. She just she just openly, you know, as he says, uh-huh. I'm going to get a notebook from my house and I'm going to take you to Melbourne. As he's getting out of the car, she's just like, hey, I like to be roughed up. Uh-huh. Yeah, no. Yeah. He said, I had the rope in the car for my canoe. I grabbed the rope and wrapped it around her neck and said, is this how you want it? I don't think he said it like that. (laughs) I pulled until I choked her out. Then I dragged her into the house. When she woke up, she said she wanted to do something freaky. So I grabbed my IV needles and surgical tubing and drained some of her blood. I'm telling you, this guy here 
Like, yeah, this isn't even logical. She said that normally she's the very shy type, but I had excited her. She told me that it was her dream to go to bed with Charles Manson. So, therefore, they went to his bedroom and they had sex. He said, I think she was a virgin. He also described to Leatherow and whoa, Rose. Whoa, 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 whoa. He thinks that she was a virgin. Uh-huh. But she said, I like it. I like to be roughed up. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's contradicting in his oh, story. Oh, for sure. Right. Yeah. Like I said, this is so not believable. No. Uh, absolutely not. Go ahead. Sorry. Very asinine. So he described to Leatherow and Russell how Christina had not been very good at fellatio. And he was laughing as he described this. <laughs> like, I mean, are you fucking stupid? Yeah. I mean, uh, guys, look, I want to tell you this. She's not very good at fellatio. like they're telling a like they're in a gym class talking about oh yeah i had this girl and she ain't good at this right yeah crazy dumbass the next morning jb had to get to uh had all right no right the next morning he had to be at work around 8 a.m because he had a meeting so he put her in the bathtub and he tells him he put her in the bathtub so Instead of taking her somewheres or whatever, he put her in the bathtub. Yeah, because that's logical. That is very logical. Okay. Putting a house guest in the bathtub. So anyways, he said that he came home around noon to check on her. He said... He left her there. In his story, he left her there. Right. Which, obviously, he did in real life. Yeah. In actuality. He said, after I came home and discovered that she wasn't there, I freaked out. I grabbed the videotape of us having sex and erased it. I took her clothes, the IV needles, and the jar that I drained her blood into and tossed them all into her handbag and threw it it in my car to get rid of it. I dumped the handbag on the side of the exit ramp of Sarno Road. So, Leatherow and Russell take him to the Sarno Road site after he was formally arrested and there was no trace of the handbag. And they later found out that he had actually thrown the handbag into a dumpster next to a Winn-Dixie. So, obviously, he had lied. Mm. So, sheriff's personnel are searching his house. They're going from room to room. They search the kitchen, bedroom, and bathroom. And these rooms match the description that Christina Alma had given them. So, obviously, she had been there. Yep. Investigators found numerous items of interest during their search including Christina's driver's license, which they found hidden in the back pocket of a soaking wet men's bathing suit hanging on a backyard clothesline because the house had a pool. So, I don't know why. I guess maybe he was just trying to hide her driver's license and thought, hey, they won't look here. Or maybe he was just crazy and went swimming with her driver's license in his swimming trunks. I don't know. Well, I mean, maybe he was wearing the swimming trunks when he was draining the blood. True. You know, I don't know. Items seized were videotapes, nylon rope, a video camera, surgical tubing, a glass beaker, and IV needles, IV needles and syringes, 
about 20 women's necklaces that were hanging beside the clothes in his closet and not in his on his wife's side of the closet where she kept her jewelry there was also a personal computer but it was left because it had not been included in the search warrant so they couldn't take his personal computer are you kidding me no and both you and i know how much shit can be found on a computer i know so Leatherow said that he regretted not seizing the computer that night because it gave JB the opportunity to erase evidence from the computer's memory. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, obviously. There was also a light beige colored two-door 1982 Nissan Stanza. All of the identifying emblems on the vehicle including the stanza emblems on the back, sides, and wheels, have been completely removed or covered with black electrical tape. What? Which is why people said, I don't know what kind of car it was. Remember from part one? Yeah, yeah. Huh. The Nissan was seized and taken to the sheriff's criminalistics lab in Titusville. While there, investigators discovered that the car had been rigged so that he could pull a knob next to the radio and locked the passenger side door via a wire that ran behind the dashboard to the passenger door. So it was basically rigged to prevent unwilling passengers from escaping. Mm. Did the police put that together like like this is what this is for? I'm assuming. Okay. Because, I mean, why else would he have that? Right. That's kind of crazy. I mean, it's not kind of crazy. It is crazy. Which tells you that he's done this numerous times. Right. He was transported to the Brevard County Jail in Titusville, where he was charged with sexual battery, aggravated battery, kidnapping, possession of marijuana that was over 20 grams, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Was that on him? It was at his house (laughs) during the search. Wow. On December 2nd, he was actually able to post bond. Since he was a first-time offender with a family and a white-collar job, he was deemed a low-flight risk, and his bond had been set at 50000 Oh, my God. Right? The next day, Leatherow met with the attorney for the Harris Corporation to request access to J.B.'s office. Leatherow was advised they would, they would need uh, a few days to arrange it, but not to worry. Because I don't know why. It didn't go into detail. Arrange it? Yeah. I, I don't know why. But they told Leathero, don't worry. JB is not permitted on these premises. So, therefore, he will not be able to get into his office to take anything or dispose of anything. So. Okay. I don't know why it had to be arranged. Uh, I mean, all right. It sounds like a lot of protection of the company in my eyes. Yeah. Anyway. I don't know. All right. Investigators returned to Jamie's house with another search warrant. When they were there the first time, there was a stack of at least 25 credit cards that were visible in his safe. They had taken a picture of it while they were there the first time. Mm -hmm. So they're like, we need to go back and see Mm -hmm. what whose names are on these credit cards. Yeah. They go back. They're they're not there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also missing was his computer oh sure Mm -hmm. his wife karen when she returned from maryland removed the computer and delivered it to jb's colleague george hurley for safekeeping 
Bruh. That's insane. I was say, you I mean, look like you want to say something. I mean, what did you think was going to happen? But if it wasn't included in the original search warrant, and you got to think, this is 1985. Not every home had a computer. Right, but at the same time, why wasn't it included in the original search warrant? Because not every home had a computer. How were they supposed to have known that he had a computer in the house? I'm sure if they would have known. But it's not like this was a a little computer back then. These things were huge. You got to remember this is 1985. I know. On December 20th, Leatherow and Lieutenant Joe Crosby met with Harris Human Resources Officer Glenn Nichols and JB's former supervisor, George Weber, to conduct a search of JB's office. His former supervisor. Yeah. Yeah, because he's not allowed there no more. <laughs> you no come to work no more. <laughs> and they found several items of interest. In the top drawer of his locked desk, they discovered a plastic sandwich bag containing Patty Volonsky's Florida ID card. Oh, shit. Her social security card. Oh, shit. Her library card, her voter registration card, and two photographs of her son. Uh-oh. Okay, this guy's just stupid. Yes. Just wait. In a filing cabinet, they found a yellow box filled with over 70 photographs of bound and gagged women who had been posed in various sexual positions. In some of the photos, a man's hands could be seen wrapped around the women's neck. <laughs> just wait. There's more. Okay. In the same cabinet... They found a card file box containing 72 3x5-inch index cards. Each card had a woman's name typed or written at the top along with her address and phone number, astrological sign, and how JB had met her. Most of the cards contained personal information about each woman, such as her sexual preferences or what her hobbies included. Some examples of what was on them cards... One woman was described as very interesting. Rather do someone's mind than their body. Another one wants to do dirty pics. Another one is a cock teaser, very self-centered. What? This was on the cards. Hmm. Stupid. Oh, yeah. While they were there, they also found two business cards. One was for Diversified Detection Services in Oakton, Virginia with James Wilt as the president, and the other was for Detective Fred Fife of the Fairfax County Police Department. Are these legit people? Yes. Okay. And they took the business cards with them, because we're going to be introduced to them two in a minute. Okay. Okay. They also found a box of slides and reams of paper that contained classified information about U.S. Navy operations including submarine deployment data and satellite images of ships in the Middle East. Oh, shit. Leatherow turned this over to federal agents who determined it to be of significant national security interest. He done messed up now. They were expecting espionage charges, but no charges were ever filed. So it was suspected that that the federal authorities may have concluded that he had the info for his own personal use or that they didn't want to draw attention to the fact that he had been granted top secret security clearance. 
Either one. Personal okay. use or we don't want to look like a dumbass because we gave them tight secret security clearance. Well, I'm sorry, but the federal government is very good at looking like a dumbass. True that. So, like I said, they took the two business cards with them and Leatherow called Detective Fife. And Fife told him that he was familiar with JB because JB had been investigated by the Fairfax County Police Department in connection with the homicide. Oh, shit. Fife had been the lead investigator, and he agreed to send Leatherow copies of the case reports. Okay. And this was the first time that Leatherow learned of the disappearance and murder of Deborah, we're going to call her Debbie, Fitzjohn. Now, I don't know if you remember in part one, we said he had dated a girl for two weeks and yep. she came up missing. Yep. This is her. On October 15th, 1978, three relic hunters, which I didn't know what that was, a relic hunter. They, they just hunt for, uh, they go around, they look and like they dig, kind of like an archaeologist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not an archaeologist. I mean, they're just... Looking for any kind of relic. Yeah, they actually have some shows and some videos on YouTube where, like, people have, with, like, very strong magnets with strength, with rope attached to them and stuff, they'll throw them into a, a river, let them sink to the bottom, and then they'll drag, seeing what they can pull out, you know? It's kind of the same thing, I guess. So also kind of like using a metal detec- detector? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The hunters were searching an area of woods in Fairfax County, and they stumbled upon a human skull. Well, I mean, it's a skull, so yeah. I guess it would be considered a relic. <laughs> a search of the area revealed a badly decomposed human body. The remains were unclothed and lying in a shallow grave in the rural area of Chantilly, Virginia. Some strands of light brown hair were found in the dirt where the body's head should have been. Mm. And due to the advanced state of decomposition, the body was sent to the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. for identification. And there, an expert identified the remains as those of Deborah Rita Fitzjohn. Okay. She was a 25-year-old woman from Centerville, Virginia. She had disappeared about 10 months earlier on January 27th, and her grandmother reported her missing the next day. Mm. The forensic report noted that examination of the body's jaw showed a faint degree of pink teeth, suggesting that the cause of death had been asphyxiation by strangulation. I've never heard of that. I haven't either. That's a new one. Yep. We learned something. Yeah. Pink teeth. Mm -hmm. Debbie grew up in the Fairfax County suburbs of Washington, D.C., when her parents separated and moved out of the area in 1964, she was adopted by her paternal grandparents, Herman and Milda. They raised her from childhood. She was petite and attractive with hazel eyes and honey blonde hair. She was about 5 feet 2 inches and weighed around 105 pounds. She played both the guitar and piano. She enjoyed traveling, art, and camping. And she maintained such a positive outlook on life that her grandmother called her a shining star. Damn. I know. She worked as an office assistant in the Consumer Relations Department of Texaco Oil Company. Damn. I know, right? At night, she took classes in math and public speaking at George Washington University in pursuit of a degree in business administration. All right. 
doing the damn thing. She is. She had divorced five years earlier, so she was living alone in a two-bedroom condo not far from her grandparents' house. Her stepmother, Edna, recalled that she was such a super kid who worked for everything she had. Everybody I know dearly loved her, but she was such a trusting kid, I guess it would have been easy to pull the wool over her eyes. At the time of her disappearance, Debbie and JB had been dating for about two weeks. Okay. They had met in the cafeteria of the office building where they both worked. And her grandmother, Milda, was initially impressed by JB when she met him. But as Debbie started spending more time with him, she began to see another side of him. So she comes home, stops by her grandmother's house one day after him and her went on a date. And she tells her grandmother that he's a nutball so oh. things aren't going well at all did she expound on that no. or? oh shit so on friday night january 27 1978 debbie was actually at her grandparents house having supper and she after dinner she drove home about 6 30 obviously she lives alone so she's like i'm gonna take a bath and i'm just gonna enjoy my evening at home sure well after she gets done with her bath jb's calling and he's like hey you want to come over to my trailer Hey. <laughs> and she agreed to go visit him for a little while. She told him that she'd be there about 7.30. So she's on her way to his trailer and she has to drive like right past her grandparents' house. Sure. So her grandmother is at the at the kitchen window because she's washing dishes. And Debbie just stops in the road. And Debbie waves and yells out, hey, I'm going to. Oh, man. I know. Hey, I'm going to Fairfax. I'll be back. And. Her grandmother, Milda, nodded and smiled. And she watched Debbie pull away in her blue 1976 Subaru. Damn. And it was the last time Milda ever saw her alive. It's a damn shame. It is. So, obviously, Debbie failed to return home the next day, Saturday, January 28th. So, Milda became worried. Milda went looking for her. And later that afternoon, she actually spotted Debbie's station wagon sitting in the parking lot of Hunter's Lodge which was a country music nightclub. And it was also about a mile from JB's trailer. Milda called JB to see if he had any idea where Debbie might be. And, of course, he's like, oh, Debbie left about 11, and I haven't heard from her since then. Of course. Yeah. So Milda contacted the Fairfax County Police Department to report the disappearance. The police prepared the missing persons report, but they told her since Debbie was an adult, and there was no obvious signs of foul play, they wouldn't be able to do much to help her. Right. However, Detective Fred Fife overheard this, and he agreed that Debbie's disappearance raised some red flags. While there was nothing concrete suggesting foul play, nothing suggested that Debbie had voluntarily left on a trip either. By then, her grandmother had went to her condo. None of her clothes are missing. All her clothes are still there. And they checked her credit cards that hadn't been used. So, if she had left and went somewhere, why isn't she using her credit cards? Right. On January 30th, Detective Fife drove to the Hunter's Lodge parking lot to inspect Debbie's Subaru. The car was locked, and Fife noted in his report that there were no signs of any foul play or any indications of any type of struggle occurring in or around the vehicle. So Fife questioned the owner of the lodge, and the owner said that the car had been parked there since the night of Friday, January 27th. (laughs) 
And a bartender, a manager, a check-in girl, and five waitresses all said that they had not seen Debbie at any time that day. So it wasn't parked there because Debbie was there. Yeah. The next day, Fife spoke with JB, and JB told him that Debbie had come over to his trailer the night of January 27th, but he had fallen asleep shortly after she arrived. Uh-huh. And she... How did he know that she left at 11 then? Exactly. And she left while he was sleeping, and he did not know where she had went. Again. How did she leave? How did he know that she left at 11? Right. Come on now. He said that the next day he had left and went to North Carolina to visit an ex-roommate, and he did not return home until Sunday night on January the 29th. So Debbie's grandparents are like getting frustrated because they're feeling like there's not a lot being done in this case. Sure. So here's where the other business card comes in. Okay. His, her grandparents hired a private detective, James Wilt. Wilt had 28 years of law enforcement experience, including he worked with the Fairfax County Police Department before he started a private detective agency with his wife in 1975. Debbie's grandparents said after they hired Wilt that the police became much more active in investigating Debbie's disappearance. yeah. (laughs) All of a sudden, oh my God. Yeah. On February the 4th, Fife actually went to jb's trailer and interviewed him and jp repeated the same story that he had said previously but this time he remembered that debbie had mentioned something about having plans on january 28th for her mother's birthday and he also made sure to throw out that he thought that debbie seemed depressed before she left okay buddy he said that him and debbie did not have an intimate relationship they had never had sex And about a week later after that interview, a letter from JB arrived at Debbie's condo. Her grandmother, Milda, was still checking her mail and going by and checking on things because in her mind, she's still thinking or hoping that Debbie's going to turn up and she wants everything in order. Right, yeah. Milda noticed that JB's name was on the return address and she's like, why would he be sending a letter to Debbie when he knows that she's missing? So, the letter was dated February the 4th, but it had not been postmarked until February the 8th. (laughs) He's trying to backtrack. Milda called Detective Fife to let him know about the letter, and then she gave the letter to Detective Wilt for safekeeping. Wilt found the letter to be extremely suspicious and an attempt at creating an alibi. There you go. So, Wilt gets JB's phone number, and he's like, okay, I need to talk to him. So, he tried calling him several times before he finally reached him. On February 20th, Wilt drove to JB's trailer and had a nearly 40-minute interview with him. JB said that Debbie had been to his trailer on three or four occasions before her final visit on January 27th. She had arrived at 7.35 p.m. shortly after the show CPO Sharky had started. He said that he fell asleep as Debbie was taking off her coat and boots, and then he woke up as she was leaving. Oh, just wait. Okay. So, Wilt's thinking that it's odd that he would invite a girl over to his house just for him to sleep. Yeah. Like, why are you going to invite a girl over and you're just going to go to sleep? Exactly. Mm. So, then Wilt's like, well, can you describe to me what Debbie was wearing? Listen to this description. He said 
She was wearing a red full-length coat with a hood, white knit gloves, a brown scarf, a multicolored print blouse, blue jeans, brown knee-high boots, along with a purse, a watch, a silver necklace, and several rings. Wilt thought this was odd because you were supposed to be sleepy. How did you notice so much detail about what she was wearing? Right, yeah. Yeah. So Wilt is seeing through this bullshit. Good. So a few weeks after this, the Fairfax County Police persuaded JB to take a polygraph test. So on March the 8th, he showed up to take the test. And the test itself lasted barely more than 30 minutes because JB kept pressing the examiner to finish his questions. And since the exam had been terminated before it could be complete, the examiner found it difficult to gauge JB's veracity. And he recommended that JB needed to sit for a second polygraph. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. This one was scheduled for March 17th. So, he actually showed up for it. And Fife was watching the exam from a two-way mirror in an observation room. And he noticed that JB was having difficulty answering some of the questions. And he appeared to be nervous. Imagine that. Throughout the examination, he denied any knowledge about or involvement in Debbie's disappearance. And the examiner informed Fife that the results of the polygraph test indicated that JB had been deliberately deceptive during parts of the exam. Of course. (laughs) The results concluded that JB definitely possessed knowledge as to the whereabouts of Deborah Fitzjohn and that JB was directly involved in her disappearance, which we knew this. Oh, well, yeah, sure. So, in the following weeks, the police department received complaints from several other women who said that he had brought them to his trailer, bound them with rope, and choked them. So, JB is starting to sense more focus on him as a suspect due to these other complaints, due to the polygraph, and he's like, oh, I got to do something about this. So, he filed a harassment complaint. Oh, my goodness. Against Fred Fife and his investigative partner, Officer J.P. Riddell. So, on December the 12th, J.B. appeared at the Fairfax County Police Station to give a statement in connection with his complaint. Okay. He claimed that Fife and Riddell had slandered him and were harassing him. He detailed how they had dug into his past. And? Exactly. He warned the police who were taking the complaint that he had already consulted with an attorney about filing a lawsuit against Fife, Riddell, and the entire Fairfax County Police Department. And he concluded all this by insisting that he had told the police everything that he knew about Debbie's disappearance and that from now on, he would refuse to discuss this any further. Do you think that had any effect on anything? Uh, It shouldn't have. Well, an internal affairs investigation obviously deemed this to be unfounded, his allegations. But it did derail the police department's investigation of him. Debbie's grandfather, Herman Fitzjohn, stated the police didn't even completely investigate Debbie's murder. They just stuck it in the dead file. They just backed off. 
As time went by, Fairfax County prosecutors sifted through the evidence that they did have, and they deemed it insufficient to seek a criminal indictment from a grand jury. Damn. So therefore, there was never any criminal prosecution of JB for Debbie's murder. So he got away with but, it. But but it can be reopened, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And it was, and I, I wasn't going to mention that, it was reopened and still nothing ever came of it. So he was never That's just ridiculous. Prosecuted. Okay, so we're back to 1985. Christina Alma is back home in California. It's December 23rd, and she received a letter at home. And the letter was from Mildred Crutchley, JB's mom. Mildred said that she had written the letter at her son's request in an attempt to get Christina to change her mind about prosecuting the case. Mm. The day before Christmas, Leatherow and Crosby interviewed Karen Crutchley with JB in attendance. Like, why did he need to be there? Maybe he was acting as her counsel? Maybe. Well, Karen clammed up. She responded to every question with, I don't remember or I don't recall. Of course. And she often glanced at him before she answered any questions. So it's like, what did y'all really think y'all were going to get? Right. And they can't really do anything. I mean, that's his wife. Mm-hmm. So she legally has the right not to say anything that would incriminate her. Plead the fifth. Plead the fifth, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to introduce you to Jackie Lee Horton. All right. He left his hometown of Lexington, Tennessee in September of 1985. He was traveling with a carnival. In early November, the carnival arrived in Brevard County, Florida. On November the 6th, Horton was accused of hitting a man with a wooden board, strip-searching the man, and robbing him of 25 cents behind a restaurant. Like, what you going to do with 25 cents? Uh... This is 1985? Yeah. No, by McDonald's cheeseburger, I guess. Oh, yeah, I probably could have. Sorry. Obviously, the carnival good food wasn't that good then. So, he was arrested and charged with armed robbery and false imprisonment. Horton was housed in the Brevard County Jail for several weeks by the time of JB's November 23rd arrest. Okay. So, they met when JB was placed in his cell. So, Horton, one day, was reading his Bible, and he could see that J.B. was obviously upset. So, Horton approached him and shared his faith in Jesus. Okay. J.B. claimed that at that moment, he was so inspired by Horton's religious faith that he decided to invite Christ into his own heart. Which, if you were legit about this, good for you. I'm glad, but I, I just don't feel he was. No. So they spent the next nine days together in jail, and they actually bonded, formed a friendship. So when J- JB actually posted his $50,000 bond on December 22nd, he gave Horton an early Christmas present by posting his $1,500 bond, <laughs> and he invited Horton to stay at his house until he could get back on his feet. And Karen was home for the first few days that Horton stayed there. On December 26th, J.B. drove her and their son to the airport so she could visit her parents in Maryland. Okay. So while this is going on, you know, Leatherow got this new information about J.B. and Debbie Fitzjohn. And they're like, yeah, this this bond isn't going to 
work, this 50000 it's not safe for you to be out on the streets. So on January the 9th, State Attorney Wolfinger requested that the court revoke his $50,000 bond and replace it with a bond of 500000 State Attorney Wolfinger said that this was necessary to get JB off the streets because, I mean, it's obvious that, you know, there's some issues. So his attorney, Joe Mitchell, called JB regarding his bond increase. And Joe Mitchell told him, you probably should just go ahead and turn yourself in to police. Yeah. And, of course, Horton is still staying at the house. So Horton said that JB hurried around the house. He went to the safe in his closet, removed some things, but Horton couldn't see what they were, put them in a plastic garbage bag. He then went into the computer room and placed other items in the bag. And he told Horton, I just need to run an errand to get rid of some things. Just stay here till I get back. So that evening, accompanied by his attorney, JB turned himself in. And investigators picked up Horton for additional questioning. And of course, Horton told them about the trash bag and his errand to get rid of stuff. And they questioned neighbors also. And neighbors said that while he was out on bond, they saw him carrying several trash bags out of his home. And they said one time he stood at the end of his driveway waiting for the garbage truck to arrive. And he placed the bags himself into the garbage truck. So he's getting rid of all kind of shit that he had hidden that was not found. They should have never even let him out. Exactly. So by now, the vampire rapist, as he's called, was being followed by newspapers across the country. So he sent a letter to the Florida Today newspaper and JB denied engaging in any acts of vampirism. As for his charges, he insisted that he had not really done anything wrong. Christina was a second-generation Charles Manson follower. And she had wanted what he offered. He had simply given her what she consciously or unconsciously desired. Like, what? Unconsciously desired. Right. Really? You can see into her conscious and see what she desired? (laughs) Just wait. Karen, his wife, she remained loyal to this fool. In an interview with reporters, she characterized J.B.'s terrifying abduction and assault of Christina Alma as a gentle rape. This is his his wife. This is his wife. It was a gentle rape. Oh. That makes it fine. His wife. His wife. Admitted that he raped. Mm -hmm. But it was gentle. But it was was gentle. So it was fine. All right. But she admits that he has um, been unfaithful. Mm-hmm. And she's sticking with him. Uh-huh. Hmm. Because it was gentle. Because it was gentle. Yes. She brushed off his behavior as him having suffered a breakdown while she was out of town. So it was, gen- it was a gentle rape. And it was fine because he had a breakdown. Because I was out of town. Okay. Yeah. Can we say she's a little brainwashed? Damn. <laughs> so jb's attorney joe mitchell is starting to fear that the media coverage would taint the mind of potential jurors so he filed a motion for a change of venue and the judge agreed and he ordered that the april 14th trial be moved to gainesville florida in alachua county 
Does everybody remember everything about Gainesville? If you've listened to the Danny Rawling episode. Yeah, but that's later, though. Yeah, that did happen later, but, but I'm just... But the Ted Bundy thing. Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Mm. But here we are. We're in Gainesville again. Wow. So it was moved to Gainesville in Alachua County. An inmate by the name of Gregory Robb met with investigators giving them info that he knew because he was actually a former cellmate of jb's rob stated that there was while he was meeting with them he stated that there was another inmate that had grown close to jb and that inmate had actually told rob that there were things about jb that would make his hair stand on end oh yeah that inmate's name was patrick dontell so we're finna learn about patrick on January the 3rd of 1986, Patrick Albert Dontell arrived at the Brevard County Jail after being transferred from an Orlando detention center. 41-year-old Dontell was awaiting trial on a sexual battery charge in addition to a charge of solicitation of prostitution. He read the Bible every night, and he also kept a diary during his confinement where he would make almost daily entries. He was eventually placed in a cell with JB, and it took about three days before JB actually struck up a conversation with him, but he had been noticing Dontell reading his Bible, and he JB told him that he had recently became a born-again Christian and asked if he could fellowship with him. Okay. So that's how they came to know each other. So now that investigators know this info, they're like, oh, we need to talk to Dontell. So yeah. on April 1st, guards open the door to JB's cell and order him to pack his shit. And he's like, why? And they said, don't worry about it, because we said so. So he's removed from the cell. A few hours later, the guards return and they escorted Dontell to an attorney's conference room in another part of the jail. And he gets in there and there's two men sitting there and it's leather and fair and he's just looking like, what is this? And they told him they were police officers and they're like, so... What can you tell us about John Crutchley? And Dontell said, I know a lot about him, but I could give you better details if I had my diary entries that are back in my cell. And they're like, you got 10 minutes. Go get them. So he goes and gets them. So this is from his diary entries. I have a feeling this is going to be good. So JB bragged to Dontell that he had committed at least four or five murders in Brevard County as well as some others elsewhere in Florida. He liked to select victims that were average and plain-looking. He would pick up hitchhikers, runaways, or people that he believed would not be missed because he had learned his lesson about murdering a girlfriend, and he almost messed up and was convicted for that, but he wasn't. JB said that after picking up a victim, he would have sex with her, usually as part of a bondage and bloodletting session, before killing her by asphyxiation or blood loss, and then disposing of the body. He would typically keep driver's licenses or other types of ID cards as mementos, which we know. He also bragged that he had a trophy collection, which was his various mementos that he kept, and he claimed that he had put the collection someplace where investigators would never find it. But it is within a half hour of his house. And he also said if you could see the place, you would not believe it. So it's kind of like, he's like, 
it's there in plain sight but you wouldn't think that this is where it would be and it's within 30 minutes of my house disney world <laughs> right he told Dontel that he had picked up patty volonsky when he spotted her hitchhiking and he strangled her to death during sex he also admitted to Dontel that he killed debbie fitzjohn in virginia which we knew that he strangled her and he hid her body in the woods but he used her own car to dispose of her body that's some bullshit damn Dontel made it a point to emphasize how much jb enjoyed the publicity that he received as the vampire rapist he found it amusing to introduce himself to people by referring to himself as count malabar <laughs> douche he enjoyed reading the news accounts about police and prosecutors inability to link him to any crimes other than the christina alma abduction he viewed the entire criminal investigation as a game that he was winning and he showed no concern about getting caught he seemed confident that law enforcement would never be able to gather enough evidence to support even a single charge of murder and Dontel told Leatherow, he said he's one step ahead of everybody he takes pride in the fact that he's beating you at your own game there's no way in the world that you can catch him because he's too smart for that but he's in jail yeah but this is for christina alma this isn't for patty Volonsky because they done found her ids and stuff in his office they have them skeletons that they found close to his house although jb knew that he had broken laws he did not feel that he had done anything wrong you broke the law but he didn't that's do anything wrong, wrong. but yeah. that's wrong Dontel said he believes that these are people that want him to hurt and rape them. He said that most of the girls that he meets are suicidal and have a death wish. And he's just the kind of person that's nice enough to carry it out. He's doing them a favor. So he's convinced in his own mind that these people want him to do this. That's just that's asinine. Like, you can read in these people's minds right. and you know that this is what they yeah, want. No, I don't buy that. On April the 4th, with the new information that they had gathered from Rob and Dontel, prosecutors filed papers to add four new criminal charges against JB. They added one count of sexual battery, one count of aggravated battery, and two counts of robbery, which included one robbery charge for taking Christina Alma's blood. <laughs> I never heard of that before never heard of that so based on these new charges the court pushed his trial date back to may 19th and of course he pled guilty to all four of these new charges and his attorney told a group of reporters that the blood robbery charge was bizarre he said i'm sure there's never been a case before in florida probably not the whole country that says if you take someone's blood it's robbery and he's right <laughs> Well, I mean, it, as far as I know. Well, yeah, I mean, I can, I can see, but it's not yours; it's theirs. True. Uh, it was taken against her will. It was taken against her will, but how do you put a value on that? You know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, like if somebody steals property, you can put a value on that. Yeah. If somebody steals money, obviously that has a value. I don't know. That's a new one. Never That's heard a new of one. it. So, I guess JB apparently is 
sitting around thinking, oh, shit, they've got Rob's testimony that, that they can use, Dontel's. This isn't really looking good for me. So on April 23rd, he signed a negotiated plea agreement at the Brevard County Jail, pleading guilty in the Christina Alma case to reduce charges consisting of one count of kidnapping and three counts of sexual battery. In exchange for the guilty plea, prosecutors dropped two counts of the sexual battery, two counts of aggravated battery, and two counts of robbery, including the robbery of blood. We're just going to let you have that blood. And they also dropped the count for the possession of the marijuana. <laughs> so what do you think he did after he did, filed this guilty plea? Well, if he filed the guilty plea, he should have just went uh, straight to sentencing. Right, but before that, what do you think? What do you think he did? What do you think was in the? What do you think he would want to do? Just kind of sit in jail and wait for his trial well, for sure. the sentencing? Yeah. Now this fool wants to hold a press conference. He held a press conference from in his jail cell at the jail, not in the cell, but he held a press conference at the jail, and his attorney objected to it, but he didn't care. So, he insisted that Christina Alma's suffering should be attributed solely to the old John Crutchley. (laughs) Okay. The man sitting before them now was someone new and had been spiritually and emotionally reborn. Okay. Christina Alma was not the only one to be pitied. Really? He was a victim himself. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay. The old John Crutchley had been led astray by that damn pornography and X-rated adult stores. Oh, I see. But he had rid himself of that mindset. Oh, I got you. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is what he said in that damn press conference. Okay. So, his attorney had him receive a psychiatric evaluation. It was done by Dr. David Greenblum. Greenblum. Greenblum found that J.B. suffered from sexual sadism, largely because he provided a long history of fantasies that centered around inflicting psychological or physical suffering in order to achieve sexual excitement. He also pointed to J.B.'s recurring tendency to blame the victim as further support for his diagnosis. Okay, that, that is all signs of a serial rapist. Yeah, which... Maybe that term wasn't around then. And maybe that's why he termed him as this. Because this term isn't good either. No, it's not. But, yeah. I mean, it's all the characteristics of a serial rapist. Right. So, after this, Dr. Greenblum strongly recommended that JB receive ongoing psychiatric treatment. No shit. Yeah, right? So, this recommendation was exactly what his attorney, Joe Mitchell, wanted he was planning to ask the court for a reduced sentence due to his client's abnormal psychological state. He would suggest that a short stay at a state treatment facility could be the best way to rehabilitate JB. There ain't no rehabilitation for that one. No, there's not. I'm sorry, but those tendencies Mm -hmm. and things, that's serial. He's going to do it again. Right. And this guy is extremely dangerous. Dangerous and astronomically smarter than everybody in the courtroom. Which makes him even more dangerous. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
So under Florida's standard sentencing guidelines, JB faced between 12 and 17 years in prison. But prosecutors requested that Judge Antoon impose a sentence exceeding the guideline. So the sentencing hearing in the case of the state of Florida versus John Brennan Crutchley went forward on June 16, 1986. And I didn't include all the details about the case because he got up there himself. Yeah, he probably... Woe is me. Oh, yeah. It's my parents' fault. Oh, sure. And of course... It's the pornography. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah. So on June 23rd, Judge John Antoon sentenced JB to 25 years in state prison. Judge Antoon noted the grotesque nature of the crime, calling the recommended sentence inadequate for such a bizarre and outrageous behavior that clearly demonstrated an utter disregard for life. In addition to the 25-year prison sentence, the judge imposed 15 years of probation for the second sexual battery, 15 years probation for the third sexual battery count, and 20 years probation for the kidnapping count. All consecutive? No, he would serve the probation after he right, right, was right. released from prison. But that's a lot of probation. That's 50 years of probation. Okay, so it's been, it's been done in, in, in chronological order. Yes. Okay, good. Uh-huh. His mother was disappointed that he received an extremely harsh sentence. What? Just wait. She believed that her son would be better off placed in a mental hospital to receive the needed treatment. Oh, for one year and he can be rehabilitated Mm -hmm. and let out? Yeah, no. She said he really does need psychiatric help, you think? She said, I think that vampire stuff was all hallucinations and marijuana. She also called Christina Alma a tramp. Trollop! She called the victim a tramp and insisted that you have to look at both sides of the story. She did get in the car. She's not Lily White. How the fuck are you going to call a victim a tramp after what all your son did to her? I have no words. This is why he's the fucking way he is. Yep. Because of you, Mm -hmm. bitch. I, I, I don't have any words for that. No. I mean, just because she got in a car, seemingly to just get a ride somewhere. Yes. It was raining, if I remember right. It was. Okay, she was trying to get somewhere. It was to visit last some day, friends. Last day in town, she's going to meet some friends. It's raining. Dude pulls over, offers her a ride. I mean, yeah. you know, it, yeah. Was, it was the 80s. You know, I can see... Why she would have gotten in the car. Right. But for his mother, which, look. I mean, let's remember I, I she mean, dressed him up as a girl. She did. till he was five years old. She did. Exactly. This bitch is not all there. She's the reason he is the way that he is. Right. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, lady. Look, you need to accept the fact that your son is fucked up. is a piece of shit yes because of you and what you did and obviously you're a piece of shit also absolutely if you're going to blame the victim mm-hmm. for you know hitching a ride which by the way um this bitch the mother mm-hmm. uh was probably thumbing her ass probably across the damn country 
her her hippie ass. You know what I'm saying? So she's probably done some hitchhiking in her past too. I'm not gonna sit here and agree with the with his mother. Oh hell no! That the victim is to blame. Is, is to blame here, right? <sighs> Fucking bitch. Exactly. You need to shut your damn mouth up and and. Uh, you should have been a better parent. But apparently you're fucked well, up. Well, that's too late for that. It's, right. It's, just, it's way too fucking late for that. Yeah. Just accept the fact that your husband, your your son is a piece of shit that you created. Accept it. Okay. Move on. Karen, his wife, she stated, I can't see why it exceeded the guidelines. It was a gentle rape. It was devoid of any overt brutality. Lady, it was a fucking rape. Karen's crazy, too. It was a fucking rape exactly i i'm i mean rape is rape whether he gently gently violated someone or he violently violated someone it's fucking rape it's the same yep i'm sorry <laughs> i'm sorry i mean i literally am, am speechless ma'am i'm i'm sorry was what was her name karen? karen 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 please um if you have any questions regarding this matter or anything you're welcome to come on over and we, we can discuss it right yeah or karen maybe you need a little psychological help also i, I think that there's a little bit of brainwashing that may have happened there. I really think so. Yeah. But I, I don't know. Bitch, you're crazy. <laughs> right? Rape is rape. I'm yeah. sorry. And looking at the tendencies that this man has and as smart as he is, he belongs. Where he belongs in jail. He belongs in jail. He's dangerous. And like we done said. When those, I'm sure that when, when the prisoners of the prison that he went to, uh, found out. I'm sure that they they probably gently raped his ass. Uh, I, I he was somebody's you, bitch. Oh yeah, he was quickly made somebody's bitch. Yeah, I can promise you that. So, lady, uh, take pride in knowing that your husband, who gently raped a, a young girl, was probably raped over ass over. raped multiple times in prison. Yeah. I'm going to get off of my high horse. <laughs> so now he's safely in prison for the Christina Alma case. But they're still trying to tie him to the the skeletons that they found. Sure. And also to uh, Patty Polonsky yeah. since they found her stuff in his office. Yeah. Have they found her body? No. A they reviewed his phone records and credit card statements, and that revealed that in 1985, in addition to being out of town on November 21st when her husband abducted Christina Alma, Karen had also been out of town from March 15th to 20 March 26th, from August 21st to August 28th, and for nearly the entire month of November. So when he's doing his bullshit, she's, she's out of time. Yeah, she's not there. Okay. So she probably has not even seen this side of him. Right. 
this monster oh yeah i'm sorry while you're gone he had a breakdown and and also no uh his he was completely himself while you were gone and the reason why she probably said he had a breakdown is probably because when he was out on bail he probably told her woe is me i couldn't do this you know what i'm Can saying you believe what they're doing to me yeah oh my god he Darkness. probably talked her into that he had a breakdown whatever lady your husband is a rapist and a murderer. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Sorry. It was also noticed that he struck quickly on March the 15th that he apparently abducted Patty Belonsky on his way home after dropping Karen and their son off at the Orlando airport. So he's not even letting any time pass right. by the time he gets rid. He's like... Here, here, bitch. You, you go on to your parents. I got some shit I got to do. And then on his way back home, he's automatically looking. He's he he probably saw her on the way to drop them off. Yeah. And and I mean, who's to say mm-hmm. that he saw that and then planned it in his mind? Smart son of a bitch. Now, smart. He saw her on the way there, and then planned it premeditated mm-hmm. you see I'm, I'm i mean it was all definitely premeditated i mean why did you have to set up your car like that why did you block the emblems on your car why were you in the ditch when the police came to surveillance your house right wow <laughs> i could just i can see it's like a, it's almost like a cartoon right that uh the, the the detective jumps into the ditch and he looks beside him and he and it, this dude jb's like Hey, what's up, dude? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. Hey, what are you looking for? I, I, you kind of wish you could have been there to see the right? look on the detective's yeah. face because he's well, probably like, "Well, yeah, yeah." But mainly the the de- bleh, mainly the detective because he was probably like, "Oh, fuck." Yeah, he's like, "Well, I'm here looking for you." No, right? <laughs> what are you doing out of here? You fuck. I mean, I can only imagine what was running through both of them's mm-hmm. mind. Damn. Karen's trips also coincided with the timing of Miss Hollywood's demise. You remember Miss Hollywood? She was the one that the skeleton they found that still had clothes on. So his yard, JB's yard, and adjoining properties were searched with dogs and were also dug up. Because he's bragged that there's also all these other people that he's done. Right. And we're still looking for Patty Volonsky's body. Mm Mm-hmm. Divers checked a pond behind his home. Several Malabar cemeteries were excavated. And the reason why is, and this is a thing, and I didn't know this was a thing, but now we know. Like, if there's a grave that has been freshly dug and somebody... Oh, I already knew this. I didn't know this. And there's, uh, for the mausoleums, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so down, I'm sorry, I'm fixing a side story here. Um... There's a mausoleum, and if anybody that is listening has ever been in um, the South Louisiana area, you'll know that there are no graves below ground. They're all above ground. And the reason for that is because the ground saturation in the area of South Louisiana is so high in content of water that it'll pop the the coffins and stuff up out of the ground. 
so they bury their uh, they bury the loved ones above ground. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes it easy to access the graves. Mm-hmm. There has been bodies found in graves that weren't supposed to be there. <clears throat> and I, I can tell this story because, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> uh, my father passed away mm-hmm. back in uh, 2003, and uh, I went and and purchased the mausoleum mm-hmm. space. They opened it, and there was a body in there. <gasps> what? An unidentified body. They don't know who it is to this, not well, as far as I know, to this day. They don't know who it was. It wow. was not in a casket. So it was somebody probably murdered and put in there. You can only imagine. I mean, yeah, but they had to literally they had to remove it and stuff. And so, and I mean, there wasn't very many mausoleums in this specific church mm-hmm. uh, that were available. So, I mean, what was I going to do? Move him? You know, right. or, or or put him somewhere. There wasn't any available. The cemetery that he's at is where the rest of my you know extended family is, my grandparents and all mm-hmm. that stuff. So I mean, I couldn't take him anywhere else, right? Because that's where he needed to be. That's where he needed to be. Yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, they opened it up. There was a body in there, unidentified. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. It happens a lot. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, it does. So uh, people yeah, suck. I've heard of that when there's a freshly dug grave mm-hmm. and they have a funeral, it's easy to dig back up because the the soil's loose. Right, and then you can cover whatever you bury back up and it won't be It won't show up on an x-ray or anything like that because they know that there's something there. Well, that and the people won't think nothing about the the dirt being disturbed. Right. Because it's exactly. a freshly dug grave. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. So, yeah, that's the thing. Wow. Yep. I learned something. They even searched a crematorium. Aircraft took infrared photography. (laughs) Aircraft took infrared photography of Malabar and searched for buried bodies. Nothing was ever found. That is insane. Yeah. So they, they did their due diligence on trying to find patty and any other bodies that he might be responsible for but they only searched right there at his house and stuff in the surrounding area Mm -hmm. remember he said that he threw some things out 30 minutes away yeah all the cemeteries and stuff they they actually did a thing of stuff that's within 30 minutes Oh, yes. they did a swath. Yes. Of, okay, okay. Yes. Got it. Sorry. I should have said that. I just assumed that everybody was reading my mind. <laughs> <laughs> so, due to dwindling leads and an increasing caseload, work on JB's case came to a standstill for the next few years. Although Leatherow and his team had gathered considerable evidence, they could not piece together the complete puzzle. In some cases, such as the Kimberly Walker murder, remember, she was the one that had he had picked up because she was out there trying to raise money for her to get a birthday gift for her four-year-old. And she also, her leg was in a cast because she had a broke leg. And they, they found that, and the cast was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They found her skeleton, and the cast was there. 
So, like in her case, they had the bodies, but no evidence linking the bodies to JB. In other cases, such as Patty Volonsky, they had the evidence tying JB to the victim, being that he had her ID and social security card and all that, but they didn't have a body to establish in the eyes of a law that the crime had actually occurred. Uh, Dontel, was this in his uh, diary, in journal, in, in his thing where he confessed to these? Would it be a jailhouse confession? Yeah, remember Dontel said he admitted to... I know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. But they, I mean, I guess if they don't have a body... Right. In, in this case, it would be a... He said, she said, he told me this, and he could be like, no, I didn't. He's making this up. Mm. Okay. In 1988, Patty Volonsky's mother, Alta, actually wrote a letter to JB asking him what happened to Patty. She wrote, please, John, tell me about your encounter with Patty. Because obviously he encountered Patty at some point because he had her stuff. Tell me where she is this douche he wrote back and urged her to seek solace in god and he denied any knowledge of patty's disappearance you had her shit anyways this is what he wrote you said that you have a lot of faith in god yet your letter reveals a person who is a lot more in prison than i am he told her to read romans 5 verses 1 through 11 he said, right there, as well as many other places, God's word tells you the only way to lasting peace and joy. So, I have an excerpt of Roman, mm-hmm, okay, part of it. It reads, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Come on, man. Which, if it wasn't in this situation, I could see where that scripture would be uplifting. But He's in taking th- that shit out of context. In this situation, you're telling this mother that her suffering is producing endurance and all that. No, fool. No. Uh-uh. What that what the suffering what what that's that what i gather now look reading the bible is 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 uh is is almost like reading an instruction manual for right. an ikea piece of furniture you can interpret it so many different ways the way that i interpret that scripture what you just read is that suffering builds endurance in you which means you need to let your body and your mind and your soul suffer the loss of a loved one you know that but that's not what she's asking that is so not what she's asking that's not what she's asking she's asking for where the fuck is my you know is she so i can grieve the loss of right my child right that's I didn't take that at. scripture that way. The way I take it is, is that the body is, you need to let your body, you need to grieve, basically. No. It says suffering, this is the way I see it. Okay. Suffering produces endurance and endurance produces hope. So you're suffering and you're going to produce endurance and then eventually you're going to have hope. And hope 
does not disappoint us. So I guess she's supposed to have eventually have hope that Patty's going to turn up one day. I don't know that I agree with that interpretation of what that is saying. You know, the Bible says that the Lord is not going to give you any more than you can take on or right. that you can handle mm-hmm. or whatever. Grieving is the best way to kind of get through mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know, to me, that that's what that's saying is you need to let your body grieve. You need to let your soul grieve the, this loss and stuff. But at the same time, you're also building up endurance in yourself to be able to, you know, have hope that the future, if something else comes up, you won't hurt as much. Again, it's an interpretation thing. So we can agree to disagree on how we interpret it. (laughs) Absolutely. You have your way of thinking, and and I'm not going to disagree with you on that. Uh, Like I said. The Bible can be interpreted many ways, many different ways. Right. The Bible itself is an interpretation Mm -hmm. anyway Mm -hmm. of the the word of Christ, the word of God and things like this. So you can interpret it however you want. I, I think that it's absolute bullshit. Oh, yeah, he never should have sent that to her mother. Absolutely not. Yeah. Like I I said, this was totally not the instance where you would share that scripture. Hell no. This this doesn't even... This doesn't even come close to even answering or even giving her any idea whatsoever as to an answer to her original question. Exactly. Or what she wanted. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. He's a piece of shit for trying to be this spiritual person. In October of 1995, the Florida Today newspaper printed a four-part series about J.B. In the series, it was revealed that he was suspected in two murders at the Norfolk Naval Air Station in Norfolk, Virginia. The murders occurred five years after the murder of Debbie Fitzjohn. The victims were Carol Ann Molner, who was 21, and Pamela Ann Kimbrew, who was 23. Molner was a Navy clerk who worked nights as a go-go dancer. She disappeared from a Norfolk nightclub in February of 1983. Her decomposed body was discovered wedged under the rocks of a seawall at the air station a few months later. Kimbrew was a Navy messenger a co-worker heard Kimbrew screaming a few minutes after she had stopped to deliver messages. So I don't know why nobody went and checked on her. Right. The next day, her bound, raped, and strangled body was found in the back seat of her submer- submerged car. Investigators said she may have still been alive when her attacker put the car in gear and sent it down a seaplane ramp into 10 feet of water. These murders happened when J.B. was working for TRW. Since he had top-secret security clearance, he had access to the Norfolk Naval Air Station. He was investigated for these, and he was highly suspected, but it was never tied to him. So DNA wasn't a thing, Mm -mm. really, Yeah. by this time. Remember, DNA didn't become a big yeah. thing until Danny Rawling, and right. that was in the 90s. Right, yeah. 
I'm just. And then the the water thing would yeah. probably, you know, wash any of that away. But I mean, I'm like, they can't get any evidence. I mean, the the water would also wash away foot, fingerprints, and and it's like, oh my god. I mean, everything's there that points to him, right? But they can't get anything to stick. Exactly. It's like throwing spaghetti down the wall. Although he had been sentenced to 25 years in prison, his actual incarceration time grew shorter every year. He was automatically given a 3,000-day reduction in his sentence as soon as he walked through the prison doors in July 1986. Why? Don't know, but he was. His sentence was also reduced 50 days for good behavior during the first five months of his incarceration. A further reduction of 20 days a month began in 1987, so every month he would get 20 days taken off. Another 176 days were deducted from his sentence for time served while awaiting trial in the Brevard County Jail. So after applying all of these credits and stuff, he received a total reduction in prison time of 5,250 days. So, what was supposed to be 25 years turned into 10. 10. This is bullshit. So, he had 15 years taken off of his sentence. 3,000 days of that, right, was the uh, immediately as he walked in the doors. Yeah. I would really like to know why. It didn't go into detail. It just said he received 3,000 days. Nobody receives... 3,000 days off immediately upon walking in. Unless you have top secret clearance at the Pentagon. I'm sure that had been stripped of him. I'm sure he had some friends in high places. Them friends in high places probably did not want their name associated with his. You're probably right. After what he did. You're probably right. You talked me into it. Okay. (laughs) that's what i'm here for (laughs) now that he's nearly served his 10 years another problem arose he was supposed to be paroled on august the 8th of 1996 so it became an issue of where he was going to be released to serve his 50 years of probation he requested to transfer his probation from florida to bridgeport west virginia where his mother still lived but West Virginia was like, nah, we, we don't want you here. You got to go on somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> the whole fucking state Said, of West Virginia was like, nah, son. Nah, cuz. <laughs> you got to go somewhere else. <laughs> so then they settled on the Christ is the Answer mission in Melbourne, Florida, which was a halfway house for transients and reformed drug addicts, alcoholics, and ex-convicts ex-convicts city of melbourne authorities said nah son not here either you can't come here (laughs) i've never heard of this the whole fucking city of melbourne florida is like nah nah son you got to go somewhere that take your bullshit elsewhere (laughs) (laughs) try orlando they'll take anybody (laughs) Well, it's funny that you said that. Oh, shit. Are you serious? 
Oh, God dang. So literally the day before he was to be released for probation, the Orlando Probation and Restitution Center reluctantly agreed to take him. Oh, my God. (laughs) There was an understanding that his placement there would be temporary, lasting only until he could get a job and find a permanent residence. Hey, uh, we know that we're a city that, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, families and children come to on vacation all the time. We'll take you. Yeah, we'll take you. We'll take that rapist and Uh murderer. Go ahead and bring your bullshit on here, son. Yep. While residing at the center, he would be required to attend a sex offender counselor counseling program. He would also be required to stay inside the facility unless accompanied by a corrections officer. And he would be under constant surveillance and supervision. Mm. While the average stay at the center was about four months... His circumstances were such that he was approved to stay up to 364 days if necessary to secure a job and permanent residence because I'm betting there's going to be a lot of places of employment that are not going to be like, hey, come on and work here. Right. And as far as his permanent residence, I mean, you got states and cities saying, no, you can't come here. Yeah. So I imagine the finding the permanent residence is going to be a hassle also. Oh, yeah. Unless he just stays in Orlando. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess. Okay. On Friday, August 9th, just one day after his release from prison, Department of Corrections officials announced that he had violated the terms of his probation by smoking marijuana the night before beginning his parole. He, he just didn't understand the instructions. He didn't. According to corrections officials, when J.B. arrived at the Orlando Probation Center, he had been informed that he would have to take a drug test, which was mandatory for anybody coming to stay there. They had to take a drug test. Absolutely. As he prepared to take the test, he told the supervising probation officer that he had smoked marijuana during a farewell party thrown for him by the other inmates. Wait, in the jail? In the jail. So this is where it becomes... So, Blaze Tredis, who was an executive assistant public defender for Brevard County, expressed doubt about the legality of the probation probation violation charge since the alleged violation had occurred while he was still in prison. Right. He said, you can only violate probation once you begin it. Yeah. If he took drugs while in prison, he might have violated prison will He might... What? <laughs> He might, he might have. <laughs> he may have violated prison rules, but not probation. And I get that. That makes total sense. Well, then he should go back to prison. And he's sent back to prison. There you go. And during his intake process, um, the jail officers discovered that he had numerous body piercings, including, so he... He was out for one day? No, he had this when he left the other prison. Oh, okay. And it when he left, it was early in the morning because they tried to do it where there would be the least amount of media and all that. Oh. So when he was let out, they noticed it, but the uh, I guess the warden of the prison wasn't there yet, so they didn't get a chance to tell him until after... JB had already left, and by then the warden's like, well, he ain't my problem no more, so okay. So, yeah, because they weren't expecting him to be back in prison so soon. So, he had 12 silver rings through his penis and scrotum. 
one ring on his navel, one large teardrop-shaped ring through the tip of his penis that even had a small padlock on it. Ow. <laughs> I mean, that's all I can say. Ow. <laughs> yeah, like... But he got these in prison. He got those in prison. <sighs> he didn't get prison tattoos. He got prison piercings. He got Prince Albert's in prison. Yeah. Oh. So a, a hearing was held to determine whether he violated the terms of his probation. And this hearing went forward on January 27, 1997. So I didn't go into a lot of detail about it. Basically... JB and his cellmate said that the night before he got out, him and his cellmate were in the cell. JB was packing. Some other prisoners came in there and was like, oh, we're going to party. And JB was like, no. And apparently they were the prison bullies. So they got into where he like crouched down against the wall and they were actually blowing the smoke in his face. And then at one point they actually made him take a hit off of it. So, I don't know. So, apparently the judge, after hearing all the testimony, announced her decision that he was going to serve life in prison for violating the terms of his probation. So, he's going back to jail. For life? For life. But he did it while he was in prison. It don't matter. The judge said, based on all the testimony, he's going back to prison for life. Hmm. So, throughout his time in prison, he remained tight-lipped about his suspected crimes. And he refused to confess or give any information about the location of his victims' bodies. Shortly after midnight on March 30, 2002, James Elders was returning to his cell in Harding Correctional Institution in Bowling Green, Florida, after having spent some quiet time reading. He shared a cell with J.B., The cell was dark when he entered it, but he could kind of see that JB was sitting upright on the top bunk bed, leaning against the wall with his back propped up on a pillow. So elders figured that he had fell asleep sitting up. And elders told him, he's like, hey, you need to move so that way you don't fall off the bunk in the middle of the night. And JB didn't respond. So elders is kind of getting aggravated like, I said, you need to move. So he begins to suspect that something might be wrong so he starts getting closer to jb to get a better look and there's a plastic country hearth bread bag pulled down over jb's head a red rubber band held the bag in place around his neck and inside the bag was a white handkerchief that was wrapped around a partially full albuterol inhaler JB was wearing only white boxer shorts, which had been pulled down to the middle of his thighs. And his mouth was hanging open and his eyes were rolled upwards. So elders yanked the bag off his face and start shaking and thinking he can kind of revive him. He couldn't, so he yelled to the guards. Members of the prison medical staff tried to revive JB, but he was pronounced dead at 1243 a.m. He was 55 years old. His body was transported to the medical examiner's office for autopsy, and the examiner concluded that his cause of death was accidental as a result of autoerotic asphyxia. 
So prison officials are like, okay, they have to take down, um, I guess, statements, affidavits from other prisoners that might have been in the area during the time. I guess just to make sure that wasn't nothing else going on. Like, he, I guess he wasn't murdered by somebody. Right. His former cellmate, Wesley Pope, signed an affidavit that stated he shared a cell with JB from November 2000 to March 2001. He said during that time period, he had seen JB masturbating, injecting needles into his penis, and inhaling spray inhalers for sexual purposes. One night around 3 a.m., he heard a choking sound and saw JB sitting in a lotus position, masturbating with a black belt wrapped around his neck. Pope requested a cell change shortly afterward. He's like, fuck that. I would have too. Yeah. Not everybody was convinced that JB's death was accidental. Greg Robb, remember his former cellmate that actually went to court? Yeah, yeah. He believed that JB had been murdered. Leatherow also believed that it was pretty feasible that J.B. had been helped to his death, perhaps by a jilted prison lover. <laughs> we will never know. So they never, like, in the, so the the cause of death was still the autoerotic asphyxiation. Mm-hmm. Yep. <clears throat> J.B. was cremated. And unlike his many victims, he received a proper funeral, and his remains were laid to rest in a well-marked, meticulously maintained burial space. Did you see where maybe people might have gone and, like, painted graffiti on it? No, because i actually seen pictures of it, and Mm. it's nice and pretty. What a piece of shit. After a short service, his ashes were placed alongside his mother's in a columbarium in the Memorial Garden of the Christ Episcopal Church in Clarksburg, West Virginia. So she died, too. Yeah. Good. She she had actually died before he died. Yeah. Phil Williams, who is a former Brevard County Sheriff, called J.B. one of the two worst criminals that he had ever encountered in his 27 years of law enforcement. He said, I'm not a superstitious person, and I'm not easily spooked. But when you were in JB's presence, it literally made the hair on the back of your head stand up. I that, can see that. That's the worst I've ever seen. Yeah. Williams believed that JB committed a lot more crimes, more heinous crimes, than the Christina Alma abduction. He regretted that JB's death prevented investigators from learning the full extent of his criminal acts. So he died. He was never tied to any of them bodies. He was never charged for any of that. Yeah, but we kind of know. We know, but still. I mean, the families, yeah, they don't have that. They don't have closure. That official closure, but they can. But Patty Volonsky, her body was never found. So her mother has absolutely no closure. Yeah, I know. That sucks. I mean, it really sucks. I mean, ding dong, the witch is dead. That's all I can say. Yeah. He's a, he's a, he's a monster. He was a monster. Created by a, a monster. monster. hmm Who's also dead. Yeah. Which is, you know, better for humanity. Yeah. I, I, that's all I'll say about that. 
I mean, yeah, it sucks that he took it to his grave, what he did. But I've never seen a criminal have so many things go right for him. It's like, you motherfucker. Yeah, I mean, he was like that one uh, cellmate said. He's this, one step ahead. This was a game. Yeah, it was a game. And he was winning. Yeah, he was. And, and he, he won. won. He won. That's he right. He won. Unfortunately, you know, uh, he did win. Yeah. And sad. It is very sad. And it fucking pisses me off because now. Oh, <clears throat> and real quickly, Karen did divorce him. Good. Yeah. Maybe she came to her senses. Maybe she did because she did divorce him and she moved back to Maryland. Good. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I hate that he, like, he, I hate that he took it to his grave. But I think that he went out the right way. You know, he didn't I- intend on taking his own life, I don't think. Uh, maybe he did have help. Maybe a jilted lover in prison. And like I said before, he was probably somebody's bitch, mm-hmm. and and maybe they did help him. Mm-hmm. Good for them. Good for them. That's right. So, wow. Yeah. What a story. What a conclusion to that story that you I know. Before. And when I read the book, oh, I hated the way it ended. I was like, no, you cannot tell me that it ends this way. But yeah. it did. Yep. It did. Wow. Great story. Thank you. I'm working on another good one. Are you? I am. That one is it's going to piss you off, too. It's pretty senseless what happens. Well, I think that our listeners probably know by now that, you know, I get triggered. Yeah. I do. And uh, for I think that all of these murders are senseless that we Mm -hmm. talk about um i get you know even more triggered when it when it happens to children right you know obviously uh i don't i just don't like violence against children i don't like violence against women right either um how about we just don't have any violence against anybody well violence against criminals that have create that have done violent acts against children and women but if we don't have any violence then they haven't created any violent acts against women and children well, that's true <laughs> yeah okay but i mean we would have to go back in time and erase a oh, lot of well, stuff yeah. i mean you know yeah it's just unfortunately it happens yeah and i think that People are sick. People are sick, and I think that there's a lot of uh, criminals that are in prison that just have no hope for reform. Right. Especially when it deals with violence against children. Yeah. Uh, There's no reform for that. I'm sorry. No. Uh, I just don't believe in it. I think that those people need to be... Those are the ones that need to be in front of a firing squad. (laughs) Well, before that, they need to be in front of the family of that child. That's true. Yeah. And um, 
in that in case, that case to me, violence need. is is acceptable. Right, and there wouldn't Believe, be a need for a firing squad. Yeah, and I would be fine with it being me that uh, performs that violent act against that violent criminal. No, you need to let their family do it. Well, Don't take that from them. I'll tell you this. For those out there that are not a violent person, don't become a violent person. Right. Because it changes you in a way that you don't want to be. My daughter uh, came to me and asked me why I never taught her how to, in so many words, be a violent person. Because I didn't want her to be that, that kind of person. She didn't want you to teach her how to be, become no, a violent person. She, she wanted you to teach her how to fight. She wanted me to teach her how to fight. And I did not want her to turn out to be a violent person like I was. But at the same time, me and her had the same personality. So even if you would have taught her to fight, I don't see her fighting. Well, like I said, it changes somebody. When you have the ability to hurt someone, you can either take that and you can use it to your advantage or you can take it and suppress it and only use it when you absolutely need it. That's the two types of people. But if you have the ability to hurt someone, you already had that ability before you learn how to fight. Because even people that the don't know. capability. Yeah, but not just because of learning to fight. Because people hurt people all the time without fighting. True. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> My wife is always right. And that's why I love her. I like to think I am, but I'm not. <laughs> I just didn't want my daughter to, to become a violent person. Yeah, and I get that. And you feared something that wasn't there. Cause Probably right. She's not a violent person. She's not. No. But anyway, I may do something different with the younger boys that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, cautiously. Yeah. And we've discussed this before. Our eight-year-old has autism. Yep. Asperger's. And. It's hard to make a decision because he's already been picked on. Right. At school. And, and I'm just looking into the future. I mean, this is always on my mind. Yeah. Is. I can't be with him all the time as much as I would love to. Right. But who's going to protect him? Right. Because that's my thing. Yeah, I agree. And then the youngest one, I mean, (laughs) he's something else, I tell you. Uh, But at the same time, I don't want, I I don't agree with bullying. I don't like bullies. Um. Uh, obviously, I'm not going to go to the school. We're not going to go to the school and start retaliating against these little boys right. that are picking on him. Right. So do we do we teach him or do we not? Or, you know, it's hard to judge what an autism brain is thinking. Right. You know, uh, so I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what to do. You know. We've discussed karate. We have. We've discussed lessons. Right. Formal lessons. And we've actually found a place near us that actually specializes in teaching children with autism karate. Right. Because obviously we wouldn't be able to send them to a regular karate class, you know, with other students. Yeah. And I I took karate for 
years and years and years competed in tournaments across the United States and things. It's good. It is. It teaches you the Mm self-discipline. It teaches you, you know, uh, the values and things like this. I think it would be good for him. That and it's it's so structured. And it is. And it's repetitive, which is good for autistic children. Right, because ours, he is so structured. He is. And, I mean, we have to have everything planned out. Yep. And we have to let him know way in advance. If something is going to be different. That's right. And, uh, again, we're still learning. Yeah. Um, but it's an experience. It is. And it's something that a lot of families go through. If you out there listening have any advice for us. Right. As parents of an autistic child, we are absolutely open to listening. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, or if you have little things that work for you. Right. Yeah. So. Anyway, that is the Story. conclusion of John, John Crutchley. So and autism. Yeah, and our and fighting. Yeah, <laughs> I've done a lot of that in my life. But anyway, um, stay tuned. We have more episodes coming. We're gonna get back on our schedule. We are officially back on our schedule. We are. And I'm going to get these uploaded as quickly as possible. We're going to get to recording again. I am also working on, uh, well, doing research on my next one. So stay tuned for that. And until the next episode, I'm Paul. And I'm Jamie. And please join us next time. And remember to stay disturbed. Bye. Bye.